Well, happy Mother's Day. Okay, all right. Uh, guess you aren't happy about your mother right now, but that's all right. Um, so usually, my experience in church has been Mother's Day is usually like right up there with Easter and Christmas, like the third, like highest attended service of the year for churches. And, um, and so I always make that a challenge for fathers. Hey, you know, let's, let's beat the women next month on Father's Day. I think we can do it this year. <laughs> so dads, let's, let's get our family, see her next, uh, next month on Father's Day, make sure they're here. If you notice someone who's not here this morning, I uh, just want to give you a challenge just to uh, reach out to them via, if you want to do Facebook or Messenger or phone call, email. Just let them know you missed them and hope they're having a good day. Just check in on them. But um, It's good to be in the house of God. I hope you're ready for God's Word. Um, we're going to open it up. If you have your scriptures with you, if you have a Bible with you, whether you're a physical copy, whether you're doing an electronic thing or whatever, uh, with three passages of scripture we've been looking through. As we've been going through this series, Following Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, we'll be looking in verse 18 through 20. We'll be in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44 through 48, and also in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What we're doing in this series is we are given this heavy calling, this commissioning, or rather a command by Jesus Christ and how to take up his ministry his message, uh, and his mission that he began and now he passes it on to the early disciples who have passed it on to us and we come to believe. And so we're learning and, and trying to understand how do we do this? How do we follow Jesus in the way that brings him glory and so that other people would know that is what we're following in this life? And so we are building this statement uh, which we will bring to conclusion here in a couple weeks. We're in week five of seven of this series. If you missed any, feel free to check it out online. You can find a link on the church's website. You can also find a podcast if you're one of those iTunes-type people. But here's our statement so far that we're going to add to today. Following Jesus recognizes Jesus' authority over my life to take action for the sake of addition in our allegiance. And today we're going to add to our statement as we advise others and ourselves, uh, or as we advise ourselves and others. Uh, last week in Bible study, Greg uh, White and I got talking about you know, school and teachers and things like that because school is about ready to come to a close once again. Uh, congratulations, Jacob, by the way. Yeah, you made it. Woohoo! All right. We're all proud of you. I mean, it's Golf, it, it's the players' weekend, so we're just, you know, keep it in perspective. But, you know, congratulations on that. Uh, school is coming to a close, you know, here in Stratford. It's last week, and uh, some schools wrap up next week. And uh, that idea of just those, those teachers. Now, how many of you all can think back when you were in school? Maybe you're still in school, still doing school. You can think of at least one teacher, maybe not at school, but maybe at church, a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study teacher, one individual that really made an impact in your life in that realm of teaching. You just think of one. Maybe, how about just even negative? <laughs> I mean, we've all had good teachers and, and bad teachers. I can remember uh, the teacher who made the most impact in my life was a, a man. Uh, it was my first male teacher, actually, uh, eighth grade, uh, middle school English and speech. His name was Mr. Hirawagan. 
Uh, and Mr. Harawagan had a uh, mustache, a lot like Tom Selleck. Y'all know Tom Selleck, Blue Bloods. If you're friends, you know, uh, he had that mustache going on. He had the glasses. I was, I was sure he smoked a pipe at some point in time in his life because he looked like that kind of guy. Um, Mr. Harawagan was the very first teacher that ever gave me a detention. And I, was, I went to the principal office once before that time, and that was when the paddles were still on the wall, and the principal said, you know, do you want me to use that? I said, no, I said, don't come back, so I didn't. Um, but Mr. Harawagan was the very first teacher to ever give me a detention, which would make you think I didn't like him. But actually, I, I grew rather fond of the man. Um, he made me read books I wouldn't have read at any point in time. He made me get up and share and do speeches, which at that point in time in my life, I was scared to death of public speaking. I didn't want anything to do with it. And yet he pushed me and, and gave me confidence to do so. Made an impact so much in my life that as I graduated high school, I felt the desire to want to become a middle school English and speech teacher. Um, and so I began pursuing that for the first two and a half, almost three years of my college uh, profession, if you want to call it that, um, until God called me into this ministry. But those individuals that have impacted our life, that's what we're really focusing on this morning, this aspect of, of teaching that we're going to look in Matthew chapter 28, of impacting others in a meaningful way. And how do we do that um, as we follow Jesus? Turning to scriptures, Matthew 28, we're going to read all three of them, and then we're going to walk through this together and see how we can do this as we leave this place here in a little bit in following Jesus. Beginning in verse 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, again in chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The final chapter of Luke is chapter 24, and we'll begin in verse 44 of that chapter. Then he, this is again Jesus speaking, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then finally, in the book of Acts, so jump past the Gospel of John into the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 1 and verse 8. Again, the words of Jesus, But you will receive power with the Holy Spirit, or when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 20, and again, we're building this statement of what it is to follow Jesus, and this is where we are this morning. Following Jesus recognizes Jesus' authority over my life to take action for the sake of addition and my allegiance as I advise myself and others. And this morning, again, our focus is this teaching, teaching them, verse 20 of Matthew 28, to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Now, if I thought, thought on this statement this, or this week and preparing for this morning and what God wanted to say, and I began thinking, okay, everything that Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to do, that's what we are to teach. And so how am I, in the course of 30 or 40 minutes, supposed to fully unwrap all that Jesus said and taught? It's a very daunting task, which I doubt you would let me have the amount of time that would be needed to do that this morning. The Gospel of John tells us in chapter 21, as he begins to wrap up his Gospel, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is John being led by the Spirit to come to this understanding that everything that he is led by the Spirit to capture what we call his gospel or the gospel of John didn't even fully capture everything that Jesus did in three years. And yet if we sit down and we're supposed to be teaching others everything that Jesus did, this is why this is a daunting task. This is why we can't fully unwrap it all in the course of 30 or 40 minutes, but it also brings us to this understanding of what we have, what we have in Scripture. If you don't know that the Bible is originally written on papyrus rolls, particularly in the New Testament, they didn't have computers that you and I could sit down to. They didn't have massive gigabyte drives or flash drives. They didn't have an abundance of notebooks. The Bible, particularly the New Testament, uh, was written as letters. We are reading other people's mail. Uh, these individuals who are led by the Spirit to write to specific groups of people for a specific intent and purpose, a lot of times to give them instructions when it comes to the Gospels. They're written to certain groups of people so they may understand who Jesus is. For Like, for example, for the Gospel of Matthew, which we're in right now, is written primarily to a Jewish audience. So you'll read through the Gospel of Matthew and you find Matthew pointing back to the prophecies of Jesus that are being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, all pointing to him being the Judeo-Messiah or the Christ that we know him as. Um, so every writer had an intent and every writer was led by God. But since they only had so much room on their papyrus rolls, they had to be very particular about what was going to be put in Scripture. They had to be very particular about what they were going to write to these people. And at the same time, they couldn't just wing it. They couldn't just sit down and, and type up an email or send out a text and be very, you know, whatever about it. It had to be something very specific so people could understand who Jesus Christ was. And then when we go in later into the New Testament with the letters of Paul and Peter and James, how we should be living according to who Christ was. At the same time, when it comes to Scripture, we have to understand that God's hand was completely upon it from the very beginning to what we have today. The Bible tells us that there's no prophecy of Scripture that comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but when God spoke, when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it lets us know that when we come to the Word of God and we come to the teachings of Christ, what He tells us that we should teach others to observe everything He commands us, we have to come with this faith that what we have here is the inerrant Word of God. What the word inerrant means is that this is perfect. It is free from error. And though God used man to record his words down into Scripture, as it tells us in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture, from old to new, all of it is God-breathed or God-inspired. God kept his hand upon it. 
It also needs to let us know that not every Bible that we come across is created equal. See, when it comes to Scripture, the Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. The New Testament is written in the language of Greek, though Jesus is known to speak Aramaic. So you have three different languages, and how many of us speak any of those here? I can't even raise my hand. I use, I use a nice computer program to help me out. But see, there's a, there's a problem then. Because how are we to know what God really said and what he really meant if we don't read those languages? So we have what we we have these English translations that are out here. And there, there are two different types of translations out in the world. And many are in this room this morning and that you're reading from. And not of them are created equal. There is a thought for thought translation and there is a word for word translation. Now, a thought-for-thought translation of the Bible is when someone goes to the text or they go to older manuscripts and they begin to write out what we would be able to read in an English language from the Hebrew or the Greek or maybe even from some Latin, uh, the Septuagint, and they begin to put these these together to form what we call the Bible. But in a thought-for-thought, what they do is they begin to imply at times what they believe the writer or what God led the writer to write in the midst of their culture. And so sometimes in a thought-for-thought translation, there's a lot of leniency in the translation of Scripture, which isn't exactly what God meant to say, but we can read it that way and misinterpret it. Then there's the word-for-word translation. What the word-for-word translation does is it takes the original languages of the Bible and translates it into the literal English. So whatever it was written in the original and the earliest manuscripts we have, it's translated so we can read it, which, by the way, doesn't always flow very well in English. If you are ever in a Spanish class, you probably remember how you have to change verbs and and pronouns and, and numerical values on things, and it gave the structure of a Spanish sentence, but if you read the Spanish sentence directly, or literally into English, it wouldn't make any sense in English. And the same thing applies to Hebrew and Greek. And so there has to be some give and take when it comes to a word for word. The thing with a word for word is that it gives us what the word of God says to the best English word that we have, but there's still problems. Because some words we read in the Greek, we may read in other places, but it's actually a different Greek word. For example, the word love in scripture is written in different ways at different times. And we do this in our own language. For example, if I throw out the word cool, some of you all who are in here this morning who, who are very cold by nature may say, I hear cool. And so I'm already saying, okay, it's temperature. I'm cool as this room is a cool room and, or I feel a cool breeze in the morning. Sometimes we say that things are cool. And we're not talking about the temperature. We're saying that they are acceptable and those things are good. Or I may say, you know, Richard Campbell is a cool person. I'm not saying that he's a cold-hearted individual. I'm saying, man, I look at you like, hey, you know, you're cool. I mean, you're a cool guy. And then we got these other things that, you know, someone is, is cool under pressure. So they're calm-headed. When things start to get turned up, they're very, you know, they're there and they're solid. So even that word cool in the English can be used in different ways. And so if I don't understand the context of what is being said, I can misinterpret what is being meant. And the same thing goes to the Word of God. That's why it's so important that you and I make sure we have an accurate translation 
of Scripture. And if you want to know how to do that, every Bible has an introduction. And in the, in the introduction of the Bible, it will tell you how those smart people compiled what they have in Scripture, and they will tell you what they view this translation as, whether it's a thought-for-thought, word-for-word, and some of them say it's the both of them together. They'll even say where they got what they have in Scripture. And there are some translations that'll point back to saying we got it from earliest manuscripts, or we got it from other translations, or we relied upon this or relied upon that. If you want a longer discussion about this, you can find me and we can talk about it. If you're curious about the translation you read from, we can talk about that. I'm not going to try to bash any of that. You should read the Bible, okay? But there are good things and there are bad things that help you understand. As for me, I want the most literal translation that I can get into because I want to know exactly what God says. I don't want to know what somebody thinks he said and what somebody thinks that they meant he said. I want to know what he said, and then it calls upon me to follow Jesus in this command here to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and we'll see how that means. So back here in chapter 20, let's see how this plays out. In verse 20, it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now the word teach, in the context of the original language, means to instruct and impart on others sound doctrine through the pattern of explanation and expounding. That's what that one word teach means that Jesus used. He says, now you are to go and instruct and impart on others sound doctrine through the pattern of explanation and expounding and to observe all that I commanded you. That's a mouthful. But then we put it down into teach. But what it means for us is that we are to teach, we are to instruct and impart on others the knowledge of God. That's what doctrine is, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's word onto others. And some of y'all have seen Jamie and I and the kids walking around town now that the weather's getting nice. And this is what we're doing some of the times, is that we're trying to have conversations with our kids about God and about how beautiful everything is and how God created it and, and all this stuff. And it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes we did in Star Wars conversations or we see squirrels and I mean we do that too but we always try to make sure we're getting down because this is what the Bible tells us in the book of Titus chapter 2 Paul is instructing Titus who's going to be leading a church he says but as for you to teach what accords with sound doctrine now here's how this plays out when we come to understand the scriptures because the word teach in Titus 2 verse 1 is not the same Greek word as teaching in Matthew chapter 28 it's a different Greek word which adds to the explanation of what teaching should be in our life. Again, if we're following Jesus, we need to know what Jesus is telling us to do. And so I'm expounding, I'm imparting sound doctrine, but the word teach is also in Scripture, meaning that I am to be advising by word and deed. See, when I'm following Jesus, here's what this means, just this aspect of teaching is that I cannot look at my son Ethan or my daughter Abby and say, okay, Ethan, do as I say, but not as I do. That's not teaching according to Jesus. Jesus commands us as following him that we do, we teach others that they are to do as we say and do as we do. We are the example of what it means to follow Jesus, the example of passing on of, of things by my life and the words that come out of my mouth. 
The Bible expands on this idea of teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to Timothy. And Paul instructs Timothy that you are to have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, you are to train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command and teach these things. Now the word teach here that Paul uses, unlike when he writes to Titus in chapter 2 verse 1, here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 through 11, the word teach is the exact same as the one that Jesus is, is recorded using in Matthew chapter 28. And what it does is not only does it tell us, okay, teaching is not only by word, but it's by action. But Paul and the word of God tells us, now this is what you should teach and what you shouldn't teach. So you're to teach things that train up for godliness. This is following Jesus. I am to teach, impart wisdom, instruct in doctrine for the things that train up for godliness. And I'm also to keep away from things that are irreverent, that are silly, that really have nothing to do with my godliness or my spiritual training. And we move on back to Matthew 20, or 28, 20. It says, teaching them to observe. What about that word observe? Well, your Bible may say the word obey. Other Bibles say the word practice. Now, if I think of observe, obey, and practice, I've got three different things that are coming to my mind. When I think of obey, I went back to like when I was in high school and I would obey my coach because my coach told me that I needed to run a certain play because, and if I didn't obey my coach, I'd ride the bench. But then I think of practice in that sort of realm, then I would go to practice and I would do things over and over and over again to try to get them down. But then you go to the word observe, which is kind of where I am in life now. I don't go to Coach Hester and say, hey, coach, put me in the game. Now I'm on the sideline observing. So what in the world does this word mean when it comes to explaining and expounding sound doctrine? The word observe in the original language means as we teach others, as we impart and expand and expound on the doctrines, the word of God, we are also to carefully attend and guard the word of God in ourselves. That's what the word observe means. So I'm teaching while I'm teaching and I'm imparting this truth in other people's lives. I'm also guarding the truth in my life, which is what Paul says is the training for godliness. I think we understand training, right? We all have ideas of training. Some of us know summer's right around the corner, so we're going to start training so we get in the beach body shape. Or some of us have... Um, races coming up. So we're going to start running because we don't want to go out and just die on the course. So we're going to start running now so we at least have our legs under. Some of us go on diets. And why do we do all these things? Because we have an end goal in mind. We have a certain place we want to be, whether physically or mentally or, or just ready for. And so when it comes to godliness, Paul says we are to train for godliness. We are to observe the word of God. We are to guard it in ourselves with the end goal. And what is the end goal? For us to become more like Christ. The final word there is the word command there in chapter 28, verse 20. The word command is, I couldn't find a translation that had a different word. It means to that which is to be done. 
So impart the wisdom while you guard it in yourselves all that which is to be done. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to make it even longer, it says to follow Jesus, we are to explain and expound the guarded word of God in our lives into others' lives so we and they know what God wants all people to do. That's teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Of course, if you read that, you probably wouldn't memorize it as easily as you have growing up. But following Jesus means that I am personally advised by God so I can publicly advise others. And in the context of this passage, in verse 19, Jesus says, go therefore, meaning that as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, as a believer, this is to be a continuing task that we are to be about in our life. We're teaching, we're observing. All that is to be done. Teaching, observing. Teaching, observing. Just continuous action in our life until we see God face to face. But again, Jesus says, all that I've commanded you, which is a daunting task. How do we do that in the next 10 minutes or so? Here's the reality. You could spend 100% of your life from the moment you were able to read and, and be coherent of things, 100% of your life dedicated to the things of God. You could listen to every sermon every, that was ever given. You could read every Christian book, every theological book ever out there, every dictionary about the Word of God, every encyclopedia about the Word of God. You could listen to every podcast that's out there. You could watch every biblical preacher on TV, and you could do your entire life just, that's what you're focused on. You don't go to work. You don't go on vacation. You eat, sleep, go to the bathroom, and then that's all you do, and you still would not exhaust the extensiveness of all that God is and all that is in God's Word. So how do we do it in the matter of time that you're going to let me do it this morning? So I want to give you an acronym. I didn't come up with this. I'm not that smart. I stole it, borrowed it uh, from the Theological Seminary out of Louisville, Kentucky, who did it in collaboration with uh, the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. Uh, some of y'all are here and like, that looks really familiar. We've done this before. I know you all remember everything we've ever talked about in Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And so we have talked about this before on a Wednesday night. So if it looks familiar, that's probably why. But here's what David Bryant says in his book, Christ is All. He says, Jesus focused his entire earthly life toward the cross. And it was there he was able to secure God's purposes for heaven and earth, including each one of us. And as Jesus focused towards the cross, now that we leave, live on the other side of the cross, our life is focused from the cross. And so we're following Jesus from the cross as he's leading us as our shepherd. And we are called to teach, expand, explain all that Jesus commanded in the course of our life, which is huge, particularly when John says if he wrote it all, all the books and all the world couldn't contain it. So how do we do it? So the acronym is GRACE, if you haven't figured that out. And it stands for five different things. God, rebellion, atonement, conversion, eternal life. All that Jesus was about dealt with all these things. If you had to put it down in just the five simple words, it'd be all these things. But here's the thing. When it comes to God, I could spend my whole life just focusing on who God is 
and still not exhaust that. And you just think, I, if you can't read this, that's fine. If you just think about who God is, and we dealt with this last week when it comes to Trinity. He's the creator. He's going to be the judge of all the earth. He's the provider. He's our refuge. He's our strong tower. He's our mighty warrior. He's the lion and the lamb. He's, he's the beginning and the end. He's the uh, omnipresent God. I mean, he's in all places. He's the eternal God. He's the all-knowing God. He's the omniscient God. That's what that means uh, when he's all-knowing. He, he's all these things. He's a God of mercy, but he's a God of wrath. He's a God of discipline and a God of love. He's a God of intimacy and a God who's close, but he's also a God that is far away from us at the same time. And so we could spend our whole life just on this aspect of God, which the Bible says Jesus came to make God known. This whole aspect of God, and we still will not exhaust it. So if you're trying to think, where do I even start in all that Jesus taught? Well, you can start in any one of these five and just start reading about these things and to begin training yourself up for godliness so that you are observing all that Jesus commanded so that you in turn can teach others how to do it and to know more about it. But one thing we understand about God is God is holy. He is set apart from us. He created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 tells us He created you and I in His image and likeness. And then you come to Genesis chapter 3 and we're introduced to this thing called sin or disobedience to the holy ways of God, His perfection, which brings in rebellion. The word rebellion that the Bible uses is sin. And again, if we sat and just tried to figure out what sin means in the full spectrum and the full scriptures, we still would not exhaust it. And coming to the understanding of who we are before a holy God, that I am a sinner, that, that I don't deserve his mercy and his grace. I don't deserve to come into his throne room. Matter of fact, I believe if we spent our whole life just on God, rebellion, and atonement, it would impact our worship forever. It would impact this church that you look, I don't deserve to be in his presence because I am tainted by sin. All because of the fall that happened in Genesis 3 is what a term out there called the depravity of man. If you want to read about that, just be careful because it could take you down some strange paths. That I have this sinful nature inside of me. I am plagued by sin. It causes me to give into worldly passions and passions of the flesh. You could spend time just saying, what are worldly passions? What are passions of the flesh? And how does that work out in my life? How does that uh, in my life, how is that revealing itself? The consequences, results, the impact that sin has in my life with my relationship with God, the impact that sin has in my life, my relationship with people, in my marriage, in my parenting. You see, you could spend your time just understanding sin in relationship to God and how that plays out in your life, and you still wouldn't exhaust it. Yet Jesus came to let it be known that we are sinners. That God is separate from us, that he is holy, and yet at the same time God is calling us to his holiness. But because we have sinned, because we are naturally rebels who are rebelling against the holiness and perfections of God, we can't do anything to satisfy God's wrath that is laying upon us in our sin. And so God gives us the atonement. That's another big word we don't use too often. It's one we find in Romans a lot, also in the big book of Hebrews. You can go back to Leviticus. I know it's an exciting book. Leviticus talks about the Day of Atonement, which the book of Hebrews 
really focuses on Jesus Christ being the atonement and the high priest. I mean, the book of Hebrews is almost all about this, the work of Jesus, that he was to sacrifice once and for all, for all time, and how he was able to do that. And he always points back to the sacrificial system because the Bible says that it is by sacrifice that we can be redeemed or we can be forgiven without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness. That's out of Hebrews. And to understand atonement, I have to understand God and rebellion, but Jesus Christ shows up on the, uh, the rivers of, Jordan, of the Jordan, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. He's pointing to the atonement work of Jesus Christ. That He is perfect. He is equal with God, of the same nature of God. This all goes in understanding my atonement. And so again, we could spend all of our time just dealing with this and understanding atonement, which leads to justification, propitiation, and redeemed, and, and, and moving to this idea of conversion, which is, leads to sanctification, and having the Spirit fill life, and giving the fruit of the Spirit, and being the temple of the Spirit, and, 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 and living and following Jesus, and what that means, and being obedient, but it's not by works, it's by faith. See, we could, we could spend all of our times on this and understanding, okay, this is what a converted person looks like in this world. This is what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, we've spent seven weeks, and I've looked back at the podcast that's online, and some of these messages have been some of the longest messages I have ever preached. Not on purpose, by the way. But I'm just saying, we could sit here and we could try to exhaust this, but we can't. We can't. But if we spent our life just focusing on, okay, who is God? Maybe this will help you with your own personal Bible study, your own personally observing and guarding the Word of God. Okay, I'm going to spend the next month just focusing on who God is. And then I'm going to spend that next month, I'm going to focus on my sin and my nature before God, before God came, my rebellion and what that means and how does God respond to that and what is that going to leave for people who remain in their sin? What does that imply? And we can rattle off things, but I think we can rattle off knowledge and understanding about what sin does and where sin leads and, and we won't even say H-E double hockey stick anymore because we don't offend anybody. But the reality is if we understood where sin went to and where it leads eternally, I believe we would be preaching more about the atonement and leading people to be converted more than anything else. If hell was a reality, it would change our evangelism strategies. We would become comfortable with it. So if we just spent time, you know, I'm going to focus on what sin is and the sinful nature and the passions of the flesh and what that means and how that puts me at ends and against God. And then the idea of atonement. We're going to deal with the atonement here, like next year, <laughs> we're going to have a series just on the atonement. Words like uh, what in world atonement means and oh, propitiation and justification and sanctification and, and sacrificial systems and, and all that. I mean, all that gives us an understanding. But here's the thing. We're going to spend about five to seven weeks just on that subject. And we're still not going to exhaust it. But then you go into conversion. What does it mean when someone is actually saved. I mean, does it mean now I can check off that little box, Christian? What does it mean? I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer. Does that actually happen in Scripture where people walk an aisle and pray to prayer? Does it mean I'm saved because I was baptized at some point in time or someone else had me baptized? Is that what, what conversion is? 
What does it mean to be a temple of the Spirit? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit doing in me right now? All this stuff and understanding conversion and then the eternal life. I mean, good grief, go ask Darren White if he wants to talk about Revelation. And he does, and he's asked me since I got here, and we'll do a little bit next, next after this series. We're going to do a series on the seven churches in Revelation. But eternal life, what is heaven and hell? What is heaven really going to be like? What is hell going to be like? What is God's judgment going to be like? When, when that happens, how is that going to happen? And you can get into pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or what did you say, pan-trib? It's all going to pan out in the end. Um, that's what your dad says. Yeah, I mean, we can get into these conversations, millennialism and, and the end of the age and God sitting on a stone and the sheep and the goats and the book of Revelation and the prophecies and the pictures. And I promise you, you cannot exhaust yourself if you spent your whole life studying Revelation. You'll never come to full understanding what everything is there. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus talks about the end of times and you can walk through that and and try to get an understanding. But if we spend our life just on these things, which Jesus focused on and Jesus talked about, and we guard those things in our life, allowing God to, to teach us so we can turn teach others, we can follow Jesus. My fears in churches today is that we're relying not on the Word of God, but a pastor or a Bible teacher to do these things when following Jesus is really, God says, I'm to be doing this. I'm to be observing. I'm to be allowing God to teach me. And while I do this, I live in the grace that God has given me. Jaron Allen writes in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, the point of the Christian life is not self-improvement or more Bible knowledge, but Christ-likeness. So here's the point of doing this. It's not so I can rattle off more Scripture or I can say I know more about the Bible than you. It's not so I can get to a passage of Scripture quicker than you can. I can have all the knowledge about God and still miss the point. Jaron Allen goes on this is the whole point of studying the Word of God, allowing God to teach us and observing the commands of Christ. The whole point is Christ's likeness. And if we miss the point of the Bible, which is to encounter the glory of Jesus, and if we aren't reading and studying to encounter the glory of Jesus, then we're missing the whole point. Missing. So what I'm going to do as a follower of Jesus Christ is I'm going to go into the Word of God to allow God to reveal Himself in these these ways. And that helps me understand grace so I can understand the glory of Jesus and now the glory that is on me because of my faith in the work of Christ. When I come to this understanding that without this grace, without this understanding that people are going to be eternally cut off from God, it should move me to be following Jesus, to be teaching and observing all that He commanded. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with, I don't even know where to start, and sharing about my faith, here you go. On the table back by the door underneath the light switches, there's a little handout. I already told you, I did not come up with this. 
When I came across this a couple years ago, I thought that is just awesome. And if I just spend my life just studying these things, I will come to a deeper understanding of God. But it's also originally written so you can share your faith. So you may be here this morning, and what the Bible tells us is you're still in your rebellion. And here's how this works out. Is there is a God who is holy. He created the heavens and the earth according to Genesis chapter 1. That he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Everyone will give accountable to this God who created all things, knows all things, and knows you in this place. Everybody will give accountable. And the reason we have to give account is because we have sin in our life. We have this rebellion. This sin is separating us from God. And if this sin is not taken care of, it's going to separate us from God into eternity to what the Bible calls heaven and hell. There are only two places people go. There's not a middle ground called purgatory. That's not biblical. There are only two places people go. It's heaven and hell. And when this life is over, there is no reset button. There is no redo, no restart. It is only those who have confessed that they are sinners and confessed that Jesus Christ was their atoning sacrifice who died for their sins. They placed him in the tomb, as Luke chapter 24 tells us, that he died, but on the third day he rose from the grave. And I placed my faith in that, that he rose so I could be forgiven. My sin could be atoned for. That word atone, this is, if you just take it like this, it means, where's my marker? What God wants to do and what God has done, the word atone, think of it this way. It means I am brought at one with God. I am brought at one with God. I'm brought back into harmony. But the thing is, until this is taken care of, I cannot be brought at one with God. And the Bible says I can't go to church enough. I can't work enough. I can't be good enough. Good people are going to go to hell. The Bible says it is only through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and life. And no one comes to the Father with me because I am the only atoning sacrifice. I am the only way you can become at one with God, which is your problem. That's your problem in life. That's everybody's problem in life is the sin problem. It's not about politics, about, not about finances, financial stuff. It's not about political schemes. It's not about social agendas. The problem in this world is sin. Until sin is dealt with, all is going to be out, out of whack. But you're here this morning because Jesus died for you to bring you back to God. And until you come to this place that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ did that for you and then confess with your mouth, you're not saved. There is no such thing in Scripture, according to the Word of God, that's spoken by God. There's no such thing as a private or secret Christian. It does not exist. And if you're here this morning like, well, you know, I would walk down the aisle. I would let people know that I want Jesus Christ. I would want people to be saved. But I don't want people to, to think, or what are people going to think about me? And, and so the Bible says, why are you so scared of people who are on this earth? You should be more scared about those who, the one who can condemn your soul to hell. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. So it comes to a place I've got to confess Jesus Christ and state my loyalty, or what we talked about last week, my allegiance 
to God because I am a sinner, but he made me at one with him through Jesus Christ. The Bible says at that moment I am saved. The word in the Bible is called justified. It means just as if you never sinned before a holy God in the first place, but it is only through Jesus. And you may be here this morning, you've been doing church, you've been doing all the things you thought you should do, but you're still missing the one thing that makes you at one with God. And that's Jesus Christ. And until you come to that place of faith and accepting Jesus Christ, the reality is there are two destinations, heaven and hell, and if without Jesus, hell is where you're going. And that's not to, like, scare you or put fear in your heart. It's to bring truth. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, so we're going to come down here and Jackson's going to come lead us in a song. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, hey, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus. But if you're here and you've already done that, then it needs to be our life's goal to become more like Christ, more godly, to pursue after what Jesus taught. And then to take that into our neighborhoods. To take that into the people that God's already placed in our life, that they can understand there is a God who loves them, but there's also a God who's going to judge them because of their sin. And we talk about how our sin has been remedied through Jesus Christ. And we give them the opportunity to have their sin remedied or redeemed paid for in full. We are now the messengers. This is part of following Jesus. He's taught us the truth. Now we are going to observe them and teach others. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've yet to accept Him, I'm going to invite you to come. If you're here and God has placed something in your mind and you know He's brought into your life that you can be this person that's teaching them about Christ, and you just need to hand that to God to give you the words and the strength and to open that door, I'm going to invite you to come kneel before the Father. But now's the time to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for loving us. I do thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you for your great mercy that is through Jesus Christ and His resurrection that we can be saved. Lord, Father, forgive us for belittling that sometimes, for forgetting sometimes. Lord, forgive us for those times we just allow it to become so small. Not to have a passion to pursue after it. To know more about it. Not to be obedient to what you command us to do. But I, I praise you that you're rising up a church here at Harvest Hill that is desiring your word, desiring to be the people you need us to be, desiring to make an impact in this world for eternity. Father, I pray for awakening. I pray that you give us such a longing in our hearts that we can relate to the psalm that says, as a deer pants for streams of living water, Lord, so our soul pants for you. Let that be our heart's cry. Let that be the heart cry of Harvest Hill, Lord, that we want nothing else but your word. We want nothing else but the people to understand your word. Lord, forgive us if we become complacent. Father, I pray for the individuals in this room. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who knows them inside and out. There's not a place they can go from your spirit. And you've brought them here in this place to be in your presence. 
by your grace and by your mercy, you've allowed all of us to enter in through the blood of Jesus. But Lord, there are people here this morning that are not saved. They're lost. And you know that about them and you love them too much to leave them there. Father, because I become aware of Satan's schemes in your word, no, he is attacking their hearts and their minds right now to put fear there. But your word says it's your spirit does not give us that fear. So by the power of your word and by the name of Jesus Christ, we rebuke that attack. And those individuals here that have come to that understanding, that revelation, that they need Jesus, and they need forgiveness for their sins, and they need to repent and confess you as their Lord and Savior, Father, you would bring them to this moment let that be. Forgive us we failed you in any time and any place as we've gathered in your name. And I thank you for this day. Praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.